Welcome to the West Side Audio Message Podcast. We hope you enjoy today's message. And if you're looking for more ways to connect with West Side Assembly of God, feel free to check us out at www.westsideag.org. You'll find all the information about our service times, upcoming events, and opportunities for you to plug in and get connected with West Side Assembly of God. Additionally, you'll find a complete online archive of all of the previous and current messages absolutely free of charge. We hope you are encouraged by this week's message, and thanks again for downloading the West Side Audio Message Podcast. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1, As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins. It's always nice to understand context. Paul didn't write that letter to you. When he said, as for you, now when we read it, we kind of take this as me. I was dead in my trespasses and sin. Well, yes, before we come to Christ, we are. But he was writing to the Ephesian church. And he was writing to the the constituency, the makeup of the Ephesian church, was people who were formerly Gentiles that, They were dead in their trespasses and sin because God's favor was on Israel. And if we want to study God's favor on Israel and and how they they rejected their Messiah and therefore the the Gentiles were brought in, we get this picture. What happened with the creation of the church is Jesus Christ, the book of John says, came unto his own. His own, he came unto the Jews. The Jews received him not. They didn't accept him as their Messiah. As a matter of fact, they mistakenly crucified him as an imposter. Came into his own. His own received him not. But as many as received him, whoever received him, that means it opened up to the Gentiles. The Gentiles who had no hope. They were lost in darkness. They had no promises. The promises were not under the Gentiles. And suddenly because Israel rejected all of this, God said, I'm going to open it up. Then to the Gentiles, and he did. So when Paul's writing to them, in the context, he's writing to the Gentiles and said, you're blessed. The promises were to Israel. They rejected it, so you got to inherit that. But we as well see a parallel case of before coming to Christ. We were lost in our sins. We were lost in our transgressions. It says, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work, in those who are disobedient. These are all very significant thoughts to bear in mind as we go through this sermon this morning. All of us lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were, by nature, deserving of wrath. Now, is it really necessary that we spell out what it means to follow the cravings of the flesh? I don't think you really have to be a Bible scholar to understand that you have cravings. Some of those cravings are very ungodly. And most people who are ungodly follow those cravings. That's why they're sinners, because they do what the body is wanting them to do, the appetites. Their emotions calling for them to do. Their friends and the world are calling for them to do. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. But because of his great love, and this is where we understand now salvation intervenes in the condition of man. Because of his great love, that's God, God who is rich in mercy made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. 
It is by grace you have been saved. And we talk about grace. Grace means it was given, but I didn't deserve it, right? We call that very conveniently unmerited favor, undeserved favor. It was given to us. We didn't earn it. We weren't worthy of it. And God raised up Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. Now this key passage, for it's by grace you have been saved. It's a repetition of what he already tipped his hand. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. You can't earn it, you're not good enough. There's nothing you can do to make you saved by works. You can't say, I'm kind to people, I give generously of what I have, I'm compassionate, I care, and therefore I ought to go to heaven. It just doesn't work. All of sin comes short of the glory of God, and it's by grace, only by grace, that God extends to us something we have already proven we do not deserve. It is by grace that you're saved, not of works, lest any man should boast. You cannot earn it. It's the gift of God. We are God's handiwork. And that's also a significant phrase to remember because that is where I take the title of my sermon. We are God's handiwork. I want you to appreciate that this morning. That's what I want to do with my sermon is build a greater appreciation in you for what God did for you And what you are. So would you say for me, I am God's handiwork. Keeping that in mind, let's see if we can appreciate what it really means to be God's handiwork. Created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Now, first of all, in this passage that I have read, we are informed about the terrible, horrible pitiful, fallen condition of mankind outside of Jesus Christ. Does the unregenerated man or woman understand the severity and the seriousness of their condition? How many of you here today clearly remember your life before Jesus Christ? Can I see your hands? Now, you that raised your hand said, I remember My life before Jesus Christ. The question is this. At that time, did you really realize how lost you were? Those of you who had no Bible background, no Christian upbringing, no church background, you may say, no, I really didn't know how lost I was. I knew what misery was. But I didn't really realize how disgustingly lost I was. So the question is, do unregenerated people really understand the seriousness? I think a lot of them do not understand. And here's how Paul describes life before Christ in this passage I read. He says in verse 1, we were dead in trespasses in sins. We understand physical death. I understand physical death. I've been in the room when people have passed away. I've watched them take their final breath. I understand physical death. I see death happening all around me as a minister. But people don't quite grasp spiritual death. I know people who are very uncomfortable with 
physical death, being around physical death. I know how upsetting that can be. But I don't know many people that are equally upset by being in the midst of spiritual death. I don't think we understand how serious spiritual death is. Without Christ, we are zombies. We're dead men walking. We're dead women walking. We go through the motions, but spiritual death has severed us from God. We have no spiritual life whatsoever. The stench of spiritual death enshrouds us. The putrefaction of the spiritual body makes us the half-decomposed zombies you can imagine in a Hollywood horror picture. We walk, but there's no real sensation. We're dead in our sins because there is no spiritual life whatsoever. There is no spiritual life apart from Jesus Christ. There is no spiritual life in finding these flaky religions around the world and being religious in those flaky religions. That doesn't create spiritual life. There is no spiritual life out of Jesus, outside of Jesus Christ. In verse 2, Paul tells us that those outside of Christ, before Christ, without Christ, such as some of us were, mindlessly follow the path blazed by the rest of the world. Like the blind leading the blind. We do what the world does. It only seems normal. It seems natural. Paul tells us also that we were in slavery, total bondage. We obeyed the prince of the power of the air. We were a puppet on a string and Satan was the puppeteer. Men and women run from surrendering to Jesus Christ because they don't want to give up their freedom. It doesn't make any sense, does it? They run from Jesus Christ because they don't want to be under authority. They want to be their own person. They don't want to surrender their freedom. This shows the blindness of their condition. They're not free. The paradox is we're only free under the authority of Jesus Christ because Jesus said, I set you free. And if I set you free, you're free indeed. But those who are not under Jesus Christ and under his authority are the ones that are in slavery. So they say, I don't want to give up my freedom. No, what we're asking people to do is to give up their bondage, to give up their slavery to cut the strings from the puppeteer and finally be free for the first time in their life. They think they're free to do whatever they want, but the Bible tells us the truth of the matter is they're not doing what they want. They're doing what the prince of the power of the air wants them to do. He's driving the bus. He's taking you where he wants you to go. He is Telling you and empowering you to do the things that you would not normally do if you had a healthy mind and a healthy spirit. He is the one in charge. He weaves the straitjacket around them and enslaves them with things that bring destruction and devastation. Like Paul described in Romans, the right things that they might want to do, they can't do. The evil things that they might not think is appropriate, they end up doing because they can't help themselves. They do not find the strength within themselves to overcome temptations and addictions and habits. They're under control of this wicked despot, but they don't want to come to Christ because they want to be 
free. They don't want to surrender that delicious freedom they have. I've counseled with numerous men and women who tell me the same story. They hate who they are. They hate what they do. They hate what they have become. They hate the pain and the suffering that they sense. They hate the shame that they bring on themselves and their loved ones. They hate what sin is doing on their body, but they continue to do it anyway. Verse 4, Paul tells us, People outside of Christ are controlled by carnal appetites and every dictate of the sinful nature. Obviously, there are those who are dead in their sins, who are also slaves to their passions and their desires. The alcoholic hates alcoholism, but he loves the alcohol. The drug addict hates drug addiction, but he loves the drugs. And so we have this love-hate relationship. We absolutely hate what these things do to us and make of us. But we love the product. And that's what the insanity of sin is all about. There are a few things in this world that are more powerful than the human basic cravings of the flesh. Every time we let flesh rule over us, we empower the flesh. Every time you surrender to the cravings of your body, your desires, you empower that entity in your life. So you have to, as a Christian, now I'm talking to the Christians now just for a moment. You have to, as a Christian, keep starving the old man. You have to keep starving the flesh. You have to keep denying the flesh. Do you understand that there are people who will take all the power that you will concede to them? And sometimes you just have to have the will and the power to tell people what your boundaries are. Some people will just run all over you. They'll take advantage of anything that you'll allow them to take advantage of until you finally stand up and say, I have boundaries and you cannot cross cross that boundary, and you cannot lord over me, and you cannot force me to do what you want me to do because I refuse to be controlled by you. Now, we understand that dynamic. Do we understand how that applies to the flesh? When the flesh keeps telling us what it wants to do, and we just obey, until finally you set your boundaries, and you say, who's in charge here? Is it the spirit man or the flesh man? And you start telling the flesh to get out of your space. You start telling the flesh to get out of your face. You tell the flesh to back off that he's not in charge. She's not in charge. The spirit man is in charge here. And when we will get around to doing that when we're ready and not when you demand it. When we do not bring our flesh into subjection, we weaken our spiritual walk. So here, I was talking with Mark Boots. We were talking about the challenge that I put before the congregation about pressing in spiritually, making spiritual advances, taking it up another notch. Remember that sermon just uh, uh, two, three weeks ago? Let's, let's find out what it takes to go to another level in our spiritual life. And I didn't come right out and say what you had to do. I said, you need, to, you need to get serious about this. So I think the undertones of that challenge was you need to pray more, you need to read your Bible more, and you need to fast more. And I was doing all right till I said fasting, then I got personal, didn't I? 
It's an opportunity to tell the flesh no and say, you're not going to tell me when we eat. I'm going to tell you when we eat. Now Mark and I are talking about this. Mark comes up with this wonderful little nugget. He says, I have come to the conclusion, it's okay for me to be hungry. I held on to that one. I want everybody to get a hold of that. It's okay because your body is telling you it's not okay. Your body is convincing you that this is red alert. This is emergency that preempts everything else in your life. Your body is telling you, and you confess it, you haven't eaten since the last meal. And your body says, I am starving! And you say, I'm going to die if I don't get something to eat. See, that's your body. Your body's calling the shots. Your body's spoiled rotten. Your body's been calling the shots all along. And if you don't feed it right now on timely manner, and it's on, I mean, it's right on, on the hour, your body rebels and gets sassy and where's the food? Somebody slit my throat. Somebody help me. Call 911. I'm starving here. Until you step up and you tell the body, it's all right to be hungry. And the body says, it's not all right. You're going to faint. I'm not going to faint. It's all right to be hungry. Body, you get back. We'll eat when I say we're going to eat. That means we're not going to eat lunch. The body rebels. But the spirit man says we can do this. Because if you don't do something to rein that flesh in, it becomes the tyrant in your life. We don't want to live as the body being the tyrant. We sure don't, certainly don't want to live as the spirit of the prince of the power of the air being the tyrant of our life. But we don't want to live with the earthly, fleshly passions and desires and appetites being the tyrant in our life. And some of you have just gotten fed up enough with the body calling the shots and the appetites calling the shots that you stood up and you said, enough is enough is enough is enough. I'm in control now. The Holy Spirit has given me the power to call the shots in this. We will do it when I say we do it, not when the body calls. This is what Christians do to keep the flesh from taking over like a dictator. You have to practice that. You can't believe in it as a philosophy and, and, and agree to it, but never practice it and do, it any, do, do yourself any good. You have to practice that. You should make it a weekly effort at least to fast a meal. Now, some of you have health concerns. I'm not going there. I'm not going to mess with you. You do what you have to do. But I'm telling you, normal healthy people need to make it a regular practice instead of the body saying it's time to eat, drop everything you're doing, stop and eat. And you just have to say, no, you've got to remember who's in charge. We're not going to eat right now. Well, who am I going to eat? I haven't made up my mind. Let you know when I'm ready. You have to keep control. But the world doesn't understand that discipline. And whatever the body calls them to do, they yield. No wonder they're slaves. And they say, I don't want to come to Jesus Christ. I don't want to give up my freedom. They are in bondage to everything the body is calling for. Is it a shocking thing as you sit there and reflect on your life to perhaps realize the bondage that you're in? 
Isn't it about time you, your spirit man, by the power of the Holy Spirit, stand up and tell the body enough is enough? You have bullied me. You have pushed me around. You have done what you want. You are killing me, and it's not going to happen any longer. I'm letting God take control of this situation. The spirit man is taking control of this situation. How about it? Subduing the flesh, taking authority over your flesh and your cravings and your appetites. You have to do that sometimes, or your flesh gets real sassy and pushy and arrogant. Somewhere along the line, we have to start telling the carnal mind no and the spirit yes. The next thing that Paul tells us about our pitiful condition, he says, we were children of wrath. And the literal translation of that is a little bit different. It means literally children of disobedience. We were people of obstinance. People of willful willful opposition to the divine will. That's what it means to be children of wrath. I know it doesn't translate well into our understanding, but that's really what that means. We are children of rebellion. We are obstinate. We oppose the will of God for our life by nature until our nature becomes entwined with Christ's nature. He tells us next we're aliens. Outsiders, outcasts from the promises. No promises of the Bible belong to those outside of Jesus Christ. He's extended grace to those who seek Him. He gave grace to the children of Israel. He made covenant promises to them. His blessings were upon Israel. He gave them miraculous victories in battles. But He didn't go around giving the Gentiles miraculous victories in battles. He dwelt among them, but he didn't go around accompanying the Gentiles in a pillar of cloud and a pillar of uh, fire. Those were promises that God had given to his people. He provided a means for dealing with their sins and the failures through the sacrificial system, but he didn't require that of the Gentiles. They had no relief from their sin and their miseries. None of these things belonged to the Gentiles. God's promises were for God's people. But the beauty of salvation is that although the Jews rejected their privilege and their Messiah, the Gentiles then now had the opportunity to receive these beautiful things. Paul said that God did this to provoke the Jews to jealousy. They once had it, they lost it. God took the toy from them, gave it to them, and like a childish, a brightish child, Israel now says, well, I want that too. Well, you had it, and you didn't take good care of it. So God's provoking Israel to jealousy and opening up the the precious promises that the the children of Israel were so proud of. These are our promises. They belong to us. We are God's chosen people. We're a royal priesthood. We're a holy nation until God took it away from them and gave it to somebody who was hungry, somebody who would appreciate it, somebody who would cherish it. And then Israel got jealous over that. Without hope, without without hope. This is rough material God had to work with. We weren't just raw material before Jesus Christ. We were broken. We were ruined. We were wasted. We were hopeless. Without Jesus, there is no hope. 
No light. No joy. No hope. No direction. Lost. I read a story about a man who was entombed in a, in a snow avalanche. It packs you in tight. If you're under several pounds of snow and it's got you packed in, there's, there's not much wiggling you can do. And the position that he ended up in inside of this snowbank from the avalanche, he was upside down and his hand was extending up above his head. Of course, being upside down, it would be below his head. is extending up like this. And he's trying to figure out his way out of his prison. And because his hand is like this, he's thinking that's up. And he thought, if I can just get something loose and start digging, I'll dig my way out of this. Had he been able to do that, he would have dug himself even deeper. He didn't have any reference point. He had no hope. He was, he was there in such a pitiful condition, he didn't know how to rescue himself. No sensation whatsoever of his dilemma. But that's a lot like people who outside of Jesus Christ think they're going to get themselves out of a mess. They don't know which direction to go. They have no reference point. They can start working towards it, but they might be working their way farther and farther away from God because they have no bearing. We've heard stories of people that have been lost in a blizzard, and though they're only a few yards from their car or their truck, they can't find their way back to it because the snow is so blinding, and as they begin to wander, they wander just farther and farther away. The wrong direction. That's the way of the lost. They're making great time. But they're altogether lost in where they're going. They don't have a clue. They have no light to guide them. They buy into godless philosophies which lead them further and further from the truth. They can't discern right from wrong. They can't discern north from south. They can't discern evil from good. They have no light. They're in gross darkness. And they don't have a clue where they're going. I find it amazing. Sometimes a dog or a cat can find its way back home from across, from coast to coast, from hundreds of miles away, from a thousand miles away, and somehow that pet finds its way back home. But a man can be within a few yards of touching God and never find his way to God because sin blinds like nothing else in the world. There is no peace. There is no safety. There is no fulfilling purpose, no spiritual purpose in life without Christ. Every religious act is a total waste of time as far as salvation and eternity is concerned. There is not one benefit of any office that Christ holds that applies to the person who is not holding on to Jesus Christ. Without Christ, you don't have a mediator in your behalf. You have no shepherd to guide you. You have no king to appeal to. You have no high priest to intercede on your behalf. You are a ship without a rudder or without a sail. You're a body without a head. You're an orphan without a father or a mother, a widowed soul without a husband, a sinner without a savior. You're on a complicated journey without a map, and you don't know how to have a clue how to get where you're wanting to go, and you are deathly ill without a doctor. You're naked, poor, miserable, wretched, and blind. There's nothing positive about being outside of Jesus Christ. The second thing I want you to consider is not only where you've been, but where you would have 
been today had it not been for God interfering in your life. Once again, I'm going to ask you to signify to me by raising your hand, answer my question. How many of you have pondered seriously where you would be today had it not been for Jesus? Have you thought about that, some of you? Is it, is it spooky? Where would I have been had it not been for Jesus? You were on the wrong trajectory. You're going the wrong direction, trying to dig yourself out of that hole and only getting deeper. I don't know where you would have been, but I know people who are on the wrong path had it not been for coming to Jesus Christ, and I've met many of those. Would they today, this very morning, instead of being here in church and trying to make something decent out of your life and serving the Lord, where would you be? Would you be this morning still in bed from a hangover? Or would you be laying over the edge of some bar drowning your sorrows with another shot of whiskey? Would you be in prison today? Some of you might actually say, I think I would actually be in prison today were it not for Jesus changing my life. Would you be in some brothel somewhere, mister, trying to find happiness in some disease-infested prostitute were it not for Jesus? Would you be responsible today for the breakup of your family? Would it have had a lasting, eternal impact on your children, your wife, if you had not come to Jesus? Would your brains be burned out by drugs? Would you be incapable of even functioning? Would you be homeless, friendless, hopeless? Would you be rich maybe in earthly treasures because you found your, your, your calling and you found your career and you had all the money you want, but you'd be completely bankrupt in spiritual matters? If you had not made the fo- decision to follow Jesus when you did, Would your kids be worse off today? Would they be following Christ? Would they be as lost as you were? Or would you have made them twofold more the child of hell than you yourself were destined to be? And Paul wrote to the Philippians and he said, As many live as enemies of the cross of Christ, their destiny is destruction. This is what would have happened. Their destiny is destruction. Their God is their stomach. Their glory is their shame because their mind is set on earthly things. Before Christ, we were headed for hell. And there's just no soft way to put that. And you probably would have made it by now. Or you'd been well on your way. Now the third and final point is this. We've considered what we used to be. And then we've speculated what we would have become. But now I want you to think about this. After Paul describes that sorry state of lostness, he says, we are his workmanship. And there's something very inspiring and very sobering about what Paul brings to this discussion. The more we get a hold of this, the more we ponder this and contemplate, the more awestruck we should become of what has actually happened to us through God. He took this inferior material, this ruined, this wasted, this corrupted, this worthless pile of twisted junk destined for the scrap heap, and he, the artist, began to perform his work on you. We were junk. We were worthless. 
I don't like remodeling. I like new building. I do remodeling sometimes because I have to, but I'm always working with things that are crooked, out of plumb. I'm always working on bad angles and Sometimes you run into poor workmanship for those who have gone before you. I like working with new. But this is a remodeling job. That sometimes, you know, whenever you see a car that is so terribly twisted and mangled and damaged, that the insurance company just junks it. It's totaled. We can't do anything with it. It'll cost you less to go buy a new car. But what we're talking about here is God comes in and sees something that's been totaled, that the world has written it off. It's no use. You're ruined. You're wasted. Nobody can do anything with you. And God comes along and takes that ruined, wasted, twisted material, and he begins to work it. And he said, I will turn it into a treasure. That's the reason Paul says we're his workmanship. You should have seen me before he started on me, is what Paul is saying. You should have seen what he had to work with. We're his workmanship. It doesn't matter how far in sin you have fallen before Christ rescued you. The fact is, Christ rescued you from certain destruction. Without Him, your ticket was punched for hell. The death shroud had been prepared for you, and the soul was already infected with the sickness of hell, and it was only a matter of time. And contrary to what the lost person might think, think, they're not in remission for their sins. They're not getting better. They're not in recovery. They're not immune to the effects of sin. They are infected and death is working in them. Sin is death. It's spiritual rot. It's spiritual rot so powerful that when it rots the spirit, then it leaches out and begins to rot the body. If you have seen pictures of people who have got into, into drugs, into meth, and you've seen how quickly they deteriorate, going from sometimes very beautiful, very attractive people into horrible, horrific-looking, ravaged, sin-ravaged people in such a short time because sin is destruction. And every good thing a man or woman could possibly ever be or ever want is totally destroyed by sin. But every good thing that sin takes away, Christ came and said, I will restore. Millions upon millions can testify of the broken lives that have been renewed, hope restored, peace replacing the conflict. I'm not talking about snake oil here, people. I'm not talking about some mythical fantasy. I'm talking about reality because you were broken, you were abused, you were ruined, you were no good. And the artist came along and said, now I'm going to show you what I can do with my talent. And he began to remake he began to rebuild. He turned you from something that was disgusting and rotten into something that is beautiful. His workmanship, 
is breathtaking. He can reverse the direction of man or woman that was headed for destruction and redeem them. He can take the man so bound by demonic forces that he was driven out of town and forced to run naked through the tombs. And he can take that man. And by the time he gets done with the touch of the master's hand, he's sitting there in his right mind and fully clothed. He can take the vile tax collector and call him into the ministry, and he becomes a minister of the gospel and an author of one of our gospels. He can take that seriously deluded Pharisee named Saul whose life was consumed with only wiping out Christianity and turn him into the greatest Christian theologian and missionary and apostle the world has ever known. How can he transform the heart of a slave trader who moved hundreds of slaves across the ocean in his cargo ship. The filthy mouth drunk, the womanizer, the heartlessly trafficking in men and women and children, and sometimes watching 25% of his cargo load die en route because of the filthy conditions in the underbelly of the ship. But on March 21st, 1748, John Newton aboard the Greyhound and setting sail for his home encountered a storm that he thought was going to destroy his ship and, and, and take his life and in desperation he knelt on that ship and just cried out and said oh God have mercy on me and he began to celebrate every year of his life March 21st 1748 the birthday of my new birth not a year went by but he didn't remember that's the time when God got a hold of him and it so impacted his life that one of the verses to amazing grace that he wrote went back to the time when his ship was seemingly going down in the storm. And he wrote these words, Through many dangers, toils, and snares I have already come. But grace has brought me safe thus far. And grace is going to take me home. Amazing grace. Oh, God's workmanship. Oh, God's workmanship. We are His workmanship. We are a piece of art. For we're his handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. A piece of art is typically put on display. It's on a wall. It's in a museum. It's in a case. It's on a pedestal. The workmanship of the artist is placed for all to see and all to admire. I go into museums and I see the antique cars. They are in pristine shape. They've been restored. But the signs say, do not touch. These cars are not for driving. They're just for show. We can't use them. They're beautiful to look at, but we can't use them. My wife and I took a tour of Hearst Castle out in the coast of California. And you need to go there if you're ever in the neighborhood. You cannot believe this house that he built. And it's all set up 
like it's ready to function. You go into the dining room and the plate, the table is set. The plates are there, the glasses. It could probably seat this long table in there. I would say it would seat 50, 60, 80 people. That's his guest dining room. And it's all ready to go, except you can't stop and eat there. And the swimming pool that is laid with these little blue, aqua blue, dark blue tiles, one-inch tiles and lines of swimming pool that is breathtaking. You can look at that beautiful blue water, crystal clear, sitting to the bottom. It's ready to jump in, except you can't swim in it. And you stay on the path. When you get inside the house, there's a path that's carpeted and everything else is roped off. Don't get off the path. Don't lean on anything. Don't touch anything. They say, do you know how many tourists go through here every year? And if everybody wants to reach out and touch something, it's going to be ruined. Don't touch. That's what they do with this beautiful display. Paul tells us, though, you're God's workmanship. But you were saved for a purpose. He didn't make you his artwork to be put on a mantle, to be hung on the wall, to be displayed on a pedestal. It's not just for show. He made you his artwork, his masterpiece. We are his workmanship because we're a working model. And he said, we're putting you to work. And that's what Jesus wants of you. If you have found salvation in Jesus Christ, you didn't get saved to sit and look pretty. You got saved to serve. What are you doing for the kingdom? His art goes to work. His art is functional. His art goes in and pierces the darkness and and spreads the light in a dark world. His art is salt in a flavorless world. His art is to be used up and burned up for Him. For we are His handiwork. Created in Christ Jesus. And you could really look at that word created and you could think recreated. Born anew in Christ Jesus. Underline that part if you want to. Memorize it. Mark it in your Bible. Created in Jesus, why? To do good works. The next phrase, which God prepared in advance for you to do. God's had a plan all along. Kind of dovetails with the last message I preached. He has a plan. You're a beautiful piece of artwork. But God wants to employ you. And you're not fulfilling his purpose in your life until you are serving him in the kingdom. We are his amazing workmanship.